You're listening to The Media Narrative. I'm Rob Hoshel. Beth Schwartz-Apfel has been reporting on the criminal justice system for more than 10 years with a particular interest in the untold stories of prisoners. Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The American Prospect, and The New York Times. She's a staff writer at The Marshall Project and has won several awards for her work as a journalist. Beth Schwartz-Apfel, thanks so much for taking the time for conversation today. My pleasure. So you started writing for the Marshall Project in 2014, right around the time of its launch. What is the Marshall Project, and how did you wind up as a member of its staff? Uh, so we're a nonprofit news organization that focuses on the criminal justice system. Uh, we're very much in the same model as like a ProPublica um, or even like an NPR where we don't use advertisers. Um, we, we are funded entirely by donations and foundations. But other than that, we're, you know, indistinguishable from a newspaper or a magazine. Um, we publish primarily online and then uh, we'll try as much as we can to partner with more traditional news organizations like newspapers or magazines or radio um, so that we can kind of broaden our reach. So um, almost uh, a lot of what we publish will be on our website and then also in a newspaper or a magazine. So what is the particular focus of the Marshall Project? So we focus exclusively on the criminal justice system, and um, that's how I ended up there. Uh, I had been freelancing for about 10 years uh, before the Marshall Project launched, and my focus as a freelancer was primarily criminal justice, so it was a really obvious fit. You've written about a range of issues uh, for the Marshall Project and before you joined the Marshall Project, including the overlap of criminal justice and labor rights, voting rights, safety of the transgender community, drug addiction, healthcare, several other articles. You've written a bunch of them. Um, how would you describe your particular mission or focus, if, if it's right to say that you have one within this realm? Me personally? Yes. Um... <laughs> I've never considered that before. Um, I would say, you know, like all good journalism, you want to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So certainly there's an element of that. Um, I think I've always been motivated by good storytelling and by sort of human connection. Um, and I think part of what drew me to the criminal justice system as a subject matter in the first place is that um, there's so much moral complexity there, um, and there's so many um, hu human stories that are all too often overlooked. I mean, the whole point of prison is to sort of remove people from society and lock them away. And so there's something extremely gratifying in sort of resisting that and bringing people's stories out into the open. And that's not to glorify anybody or to you know, say that a prisoner's story has inherent worth any more than any other humans does, but it doesn't have any less worth than any other humans do. do. And um, I think that part of my mission and as a, as a journalist and part of our mission as the Marshall Project is to sort of correct this longstanding counter-narrative that prisoners should be, you know, locked away from the world um, and that by doing something wrong, somehow you forfeit all the other um, things about being human, <laughs> like having a story that's worth telling, um, having access to you know various rights and responsibilities. 
So how did this interest in, in helping tell those stories first draw you in? And I guess I'm kind of curious how your whole career as a journalist started. Did you always know that you wanted to focus particularly on criminal justice? Not at all, uh, nor did I always know I wanted to be a journalist, actually. Um, initially, my interest, I always loved to write, so I always had that interest in, in, in writing. Primarily, I was interested in poetry early on. Um, and then in college, I got um, I got involved with public health. I was involved in HIV work. I was involved in hepatitis C work. That was what I did when I graduated from college. I, I worked in a in a hepatitis C HIV clinic as an outreach worker, um, which was really wonderful work. Um, but it was very emotionally trying work. And after a couple of years. I just attended like one too many funerals and kind of lost it and didn't know what else to do. And so sort of started casting around um, for what might be the next thing I try. And like I'd always loved writing, had no experience doing it professionally. But, you know, I was 24. I felt like impossibly old at that point and started reaching out to different editors. Um, I lived in Providence at the time. So um, saying, do you have internships? You know, what, what can I, what can I do to try this out? And fortunately I found uh, a couple of editors who were very kind to me and, and let me try my hand at it. Um, and you know, now it seems impossible to imagine because criminal justice is on everybody's mind. You know, um, people were talking about it at the Grammys. We're talking about it, you know, everywhere you turn, people are talking about criminal justice. In, in, you know, 2004, 2005, that was really not the case. You know, we still had, you know, mass incarceration was, if anything, worse than it is now, not by the numbers, but just by the lack of awareness. Um, and, you know, people just didn't talk about it. It just wasn't an issue. Um, and so when I got started as a journalist and, you know, people were telling me, you really need a beat, you really need a focus... Um, as part of my HIV work and hepatitis C work, I would go into the local prison um, to, I, I helped run a, vaccinate, a hepatitis B vaccination program. And a lot of the doctors I worked with um, were treating folks with HIV inside the prison. So um, I was so moved by the people I met there. Um, you know, I worked primarily in the women's prison and man, these ladies were funny. They were generous. You know, they were just not what you would expect. Um, and so it just felt like, given the number of people in prison and the stories that were going untold, that felt like a really obvious place uh, to direct my attention as a journalist, and it kind of snowballed from there. So as far as what you actually covered within that realm, you, you just sort of let your uh, attention lead you to whatever the next thing was. And I still do. Yeah, pretty much. You, you know, one story often leads to the next. Somebody will give you a tip or you'll work on one story and then there'll be sort of an angle or an aspect of that story that you don't have time or space to delve into and you'll sort of put it in your file for the next one. That's often what happens. You just mentioned the humor and character uh, of some of the incarcerated you met. I wonder, that immediately makes me think about the article you wrote, uh, I think it was for Mother Jones, about a collaboration between the Evergreen State College and prisons in Washington. I wonder if you could say more about that. That was really fascinating in terms of not only the skills that inmates were beginning to develop, but also that collaborative aspect with an institution that I think helped beef up and bring the program forward. Yeah, certainly. I mean... One of the major issues in prison um, is what people do all day. You know, um, any warden will tell you that, you know, you don't want people sitting around 
idle. That's the worst thing you can do. Um, and, you know, people don't realize this. A lot of people don't realize this, but people in prison need money. Um, you get three pretty bare bones meals a day. If you're lucky, you get like a trial tube of toothpaste and deodorant and everything else. You're pretty much on your own. So people need money for stamps so they can write their kids. They need money. Phone calls cost a fortune from prison. Um, so you need money to pay to call your family. You need money to supplement the meager food rations. You need money for personal hygiene items, anything you want or need in prison, books, a typewriter, a radio that all costs money. Um, and so, you know, folks need jobs. So, you know, those things to combine to where a lot of prison, you know, most prisons employ prisoners to do almost everything you can imagine. So, you know, they're mopping the floors, they're cooking the food, um, they're delivering the mail, uh, they're filing papers in the warden's office, you know, and a lot, some of it is complete make work. Like even the wardens will tell you this, you know, the floor is already spotless. We just, you know, need something to give folks to do. Um, and, you know, they're paid eight cents an hour, 10 cents an hour, 15 cents an hour. So it's not like it's costing the prison much to keep folks busy. It's not like it's helping them a tremendous amount financially either. But right. everybody would rather have something to do than not for the most part. Um, you know, enter this this uh, Evergreen State College professor, this woman named Nalini Nadkarni, who's a uh, um, passionate environmentalist. And um, she said, look, we have these endangered plants and animals that we need to nurture, um, but it's incredibly labor intensive. And I can't think of a research assistant who has enough time on their hands to sit and like, you know, feed this moss with a dropper. Um, and so uh, um, she, you know, teamed up with the local prison and um, prisoners took this project on. They raised endangered grasses, they raised endangered, I think it was frogs. And it just was so successful, A, because it gave the prisoners a sense of being part of something larger than themselves and being part, I mean, if you talk to uh, any prisoner about any job that reaches outside the walls, it is so gratifying to be part of that, um, that it just was extremely successful and it sort of built from there. So they ended up, um, you know, running a composting program, running a recycling program, uh, expanded to other prisons. Um, and so it was sort of win-win for everybody. I mean, the wages were still extremely low. Um, but I think as far as the meaningfulness of the work um, and the impact of the work, uh, it was tremendously helpful to these environmental groups that were benefiting from what the prisoners were doing. And it was also, I think, tremendously gratifying for the prisoners themselves. So you wrote this story a few years ago, and I don't imagine you've, you've kept track of, of the, some of the people who you interviewed, but is it your sense that inmates who have opportunities like that have gone on, have uh, left prison and then gotten jobs related to the kind of experiences they had? You hear people talking about that. I certainly don't feel qualified to say for sure. Okay. Um, I mean, I think, you know, studies show that prisoners who have participated in meaningful work while they're in prison are more likely to be able to get a job when they get out. Um, that's especially true in fields where uh, it requires a fair amount of training or apprenticeship. There are some prisons that have, you know, welding programs or cabinet making programs, programs where you really learn a trade. Um, so for those folks, especially, I think they have an easier time of it when they get out. Um, but it's really hard to find a job when you have a felony conviction. I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's one of the major, major stumbling blocks to reintegration when people get out. Is that a story that you've covered over the years? Um, it's sort of one of those things that's 
humming in the background of every story about, especially about, um, about people coming home, about, you know, reintegration, um, release from prison. It's just, um, it's, all, it's, it's always there. From reading another article you wrote, this was one that you won an award for, the 2014 American Prospect article titled The Great American Chain Gang. And that really focused on this issue of low pay for prison work. When you talk about the benefits to inmates and the fact that recidivism, one would think, would go down in a case where they have that sort of meaningful work in prison, why doesn't why isn't there more of this? And why? Um, what are some of the competing narratives that sort of fight against the continuing development of projects like the one you just described in Washington? Um, well, there's a lot of them. So like I said, most prisoners want to work and most prisons want to accommodate that because um, it's better for everyone when, when folks are busy. Um, what the problem is, is when people say, look, I want to work. I even like my job. You know, sometimes prisons can provide jobs like you, you can be a GED tutor, for instance, or you can be a peer counselor in like a drug counseling program, really meaningful work, but we'll still only pay you 10 cents an hour. And so people, you know, they the, that's a large source of frustration because, you know, how am I supposed to make a nest egg for myself? So when I get out, I can put down a deposit on an apartment. Like you want me to go out and build a better life for myself when I get out of here? How can I do that with $75 in my pocket, you know? Um, so it, I think the, that it feels exploitative to the, to the prisoners and it feels a little self-defeating, you know, as a taxpayer to, to help somebody turn your life around, get straight and get out with $25 and, and, and make your way as a law abiding citizen. I mean, if I had $25 in my pocket and no place to live and nothing to eat, I mean, I would probably go steal food too. Right. right? I mean, it's like the classic Jean Valjean story. <laughs> so you're sort of setting people up in a way. Then um, enter other programs like these, uh, this Evergreen State program that um, provides a lot of meaningful work, um, uh, but not a lot of pay. Or, or there are other programs um, called uh, correctional industries programs, where the state actually runs a program to teach people these kind of um, trades, like cabinetry or uh, or welding or things like that. Um, these programs are designed to not make a profit. You know, they're, they're sort of structured as nonprofit organizations. So it's not like they're making money off of people. It's, you know, it's thought of very much like an apprenticeship where you make a little bit of money, um, but primarily the focus is on training you to do stuff. So, um, so these are, these, in these situations, um, people are, prisoners are building, um, uh, or making goods and services for the state to then to then use. So sometimes they'll sew their own uniforms. Sometimes they'll sew the uniforms of correctional officers. Um, I went to one metals plant where they were making all the they made all the road signs in the in the state, um, stop signs. You know the sign the exit signs on the highway. Prisoners made all that stuff. Um, they made lockers for the state police barracks. You know there are states where prisoners make all of the food for all of the prisons in the state. That it's like a, a, a cook chill facility. So the, it's a large scale industrial food making um, situation. So these are, again, skilled jobs that are providing uh, meaningful um, goods and services. And then prisoners say, you're paying me a dollar an hour for this. You know, if they're lucky, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and you know, <laughs> If I weren't doing this job for a dollar an hour, you would be paying a contractor, you know, $15 an hour. Right. How is that fair? On the flip side, 
the contractors on the outside who might have otherwise had that contract to make all the food for the prisons are saying, what's up with this? You're undercutting the free market here. You're making it hard for me to earn a living wage on the outside. And meantime, you're giving jobs to prisoners instead of to law-abiding citizens like me. You know, I bid for this contract and I, I don't get it because you can undercut me by paying prisoners a tiny, uh, tiny wage. So, th- so there's sort of, <laughs> there's sort of a lot of upsides about it, but there's a lot of you know, all of the players in this situation feel wronged in one way or another. Are you aware of this conversation changing at all in the last year or so since uh, our president has talked so much about about jobs in the country? Um, you know, I would say the conversation has changed more in the last year or so as a result of um, these widespread prison strikes that happened um, last year where uh, there were these coordinated strikes um, in something like a dozen states where prisoners just decided one day, uh, you know, organized such that one day they all just stopped showing up for work. You know, it was too small scale to really make a difference um, as far as changing working conditions, but it was large scale enough that people were talking about it. And I think it was the first time that people out in the world thought to themselves, oh yeah, like, you know, prisoners do work. And, you know, what what do we owe them as far as um, fair pay for fair work? And how does that intersect with the larger economy? I think, you know, with Americans dawning awareness of mass incarceration in general comes um, now this sort of awareness of, oh, yeah, you know, like, like labor is an issue on the outside. It's, it's an issue on the inside, too. I've done some volunteering in prison myself, teaching writing uh, at a Massachusetts prison. And one thing that people used to ask me when I would tell them about this is, why are you doing that? Why are you giving time to people who committed crimes, serious crimes, violent crimes? Do you get questions like that? And do you ever feel any sort of ambivalence about the work that you're doing? Um, actually, it's funny, like we were talking about before, I used to get questions like that much more. Now, I think it's much more obvious to people why I would be interested in it. Um, because there's this now this awareness of, you know, the way in which prisoners are, you know, disproportionately drawn from certain neighborhoods, how, you know, uh, certain aggressive types of policing results in disproportionate impact on certain communities ending up in prison, that there's an element of social justice in this work, even if somebody's done something wrong. Because let's face it, we've all done things wrong, but only certain ones of us end up in prison for it. So I think there's more of an awareness of that. Um, to the extent that, and look, there are always going to be times when you're working a story and you're ta- you know, interacting with somebody, talking at length to somebody who's done something that's deeply troubling, to say the, you know, the least. I've certainly spent a lot of time with people who have committed terrible crimes that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. So I really don't want to minimize that. That said, part of what motivates me as a journalist is that as soon as we make somebody into a monster who's not human, who's not worthy of you know human connection, we sort of undermine the project of addressing the issue of violent crime because we can't understand monsters, right? We don't know what motivates monsters to do what they do because they're not human. 
if we can understand what motivates humans to do what they do, if we can understand um, what makes people tick and what makes people make these terrible choices, then that's a small step towards preventing that in the future. And it's something I've grappled with a lot, especially like when I've dealt with people convicted of rape, you know, as like a feminist, that's an extremely uncomfortable position for me to be in. But at the end of the day, I think it's the ultimate feminist project to understand why rapists do what they do, right? Is because if we don't understand why people do what they do, we can't prevent it. So I, I think that has to be part of any attempt to, you know, prevent violent crime. It has to be to humanize the people who are doing it because otherwise, you know, monsters are monsters. I wonder if you could unpack the way you approach reporting and writing one of these stories. Uh, you could look at the chain gang story or some other story. When you're at the very beginning, how do you start and how does the process evolve over time? It really depends on the type of story, but usually I'll start with a seed of an idea. So, you know, the the prison labor story actually was born in part of that Washington State story because here were these people who were doing work in the prison. It was the first time I'd sort of encountered that as an issue in itself. And, um, you know, I started calling labor unions and saying, so, like, you know, your exploited colleagues in prison who are making pennies on the dollar, labor unions, there, there are a few that are on board now, but at the time, they hated prison workers because they were, you know, they're building furniture. And here you have like the, the, these beleaguered furniture making unions in Michigan who are, you know, losing jobs left and right. And, and here are these prisoners who are undercutting their wages. Like the, the, all the natural allies who would have been, you know, who, who, who you would think would take the side of prisoners were not interested and openly hostile in some cases. Um, so, you know, the Washington State job sort of sparked that um, inquiry, which ultimately led to the story. So it usually happens that way where I'll start with a seed of an idea um, and then I'll just kind of run with it. You know, it's, it's it's hard to generalize because it depends on the story. But, you know, usually I'll start by calling like professors and, you know, experts to get a sense of like what the what the universe of information is like. Who should I talk to? What have people looked into? What haven't people looked into? Where are the big gaps? Um, what do you think people need to know? And then, um, and then always there's looking for for characters and scenes. You know, there's looking for the people um, and the places that are going to bring the issue alive for readers. That's that's the that's the hardest part. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of your stories begin with this sort of an image or a scene. Uh, one began with uh, uh, somebody being carried out in a body bag after attempted suicide. And, um, you know, so it seems like you you look for something to immediately draw the reader in once you sit down to write. Is that part of your strategy to try to kind of humanize what you're writing about? Oh, of course. Yeah. And in fact, it's funny because I do a, a lot of news writing now at the Marshall Project. I really only did magazine style features before I came to the Marshall Project. And my editors have had to sort of beat that impulse out of me oh. on news stories because, you you know, when you have like 70, 750 words to tell about something that happened in the news, like you just can't spend a hundred of them introducing them to some like, you know, sad sack case right. that illustrates the news. Um, so yeah, but that's always my impulse, certainly. Because that's my, that's, that's my impulse as a reader too, is I'm always looking for somebody to connect with. One big issue that I didn't see, uh, well, I, I saw one very short news story for the Marshall Project that, that had focused on a form relating to uh, voting. And I wanted to just ask briefly about felony disenfranchisement. There's there's two states, Maine and Vermont, that allow the incarcerated to actually vote. I believe they're the only two states in the union that do that. And then there's three states, 
Iowa, Virginia, and one uh, one other one that once you're a felon, you never get to vote for the rest Florida. of Florida. Florida, right. So, uh, and then I guess everybody else is in between somewhere. Um, I don't know how much you focused on that issue, but with voting rights being very much in the news at the moment, where do you see this potentially going, if anywhere? Do you think um, things might change on this front? Um, that is a political question. Um, you know, certainly if you can imagine, I mean, there's something like 9 million people in this country who are under some kind of correctional supervision, meaning prisons, jails, probation, parole. And in many states, you know, people in any one of those categories are barred from voting. And as you mentioned in a few states, uh, if you have any kind of felony conviction at all, you're barred from voting for life. So we're talking about a, a gigantic, I mean, 9 million people was far larger than the margin of victory in November. So we're talking about, you know, a, a very meaningful number of people. The problem is, as you can imagine, um, states where, uh, you know, vote enfranchisement, making it possible for more people to vote is largely a Democratic cause and making it harder for people to vote is largely a Republican cause, as we've seen play out in the courts lately with um, all the voter ID laws and, you know, um, by and large attempts to make it harder for people to vote because of alleged voter fraud is a Republican project. And so um, it's really hard to imagine, you know, states where the legislature is Republican controlled um, to uh, address this issue of felony disenfranchisement. Um, And uh, in Democratic states, you tend to see less of that kind of thing. So, um, you know, do, do I think that it's the right thing to do? Of course, you know, I mean, there's this whole range of rights that for some reason we've decided, I mean, look, if you did something wrong, we as a society have decided, you know, we need to punish you in some way. We need to either send you to prison or jail. We need to put you on probation. You need to be held accountable for your actions. But, you know, and and that's fair enough. But over the years, there's been all these ancillary punishments tacked on um, that have little to do with um, whatever crime you may have committed. And in fact, are you know, in many ways counterproductive that cause me more to be more likely to commit crimes. So we've taken away in um, your ability to live in public housing. We've taken away your ability to get a federal loan for college. Um, we've, we've, um, and in, in many states, we've taken away your right to vote. So first, until we can get past this idea that you can commit a crime, you can serve your time, and then move on, unless we can get, you know, unless we can get to that place, it's very hard to imagine uh, you know, reversing this felony disenfranchisement mm-hmm. trend on a large scale. Right. We're seeing it on small scale, like Rhode Island changed their law a couple of years ago. You know, in, in, on a small scale, we're seeing it um, in, in different cities and states, but uh, uh, on a large scale, it's hard to imagine. I don't know if you do any teaching or talk to journalism students, but uh, if you were to, and if you do, what sort of advice do you have for them? What what do you think are the characters, the qualities that someone needs to develop in order to do the kind of work that you do? Um, the first thing I tell people when they're um, starting out is you have to not be, af- uh, not be afraid of annoying people. Hmm. Um, you know, every summer we get a crop of interns, uh, and that's like one of the hardest things, I think, to learn is, you know, if the person doesn't call you back, 
you need to call them again. And if they don't call you back, you need to call them again. Um, and then maybe you need to call their cell phone and then maybe you need to call their boss, you know, um, or even if you forgot to ask somebody something, you know, it's our impulse as humans to be like, no, no, I don't want to bother them. But no, that's your job. When you're a journalist, you have to bother them. Um, you also have to have a thick skin and be prepared to, you know, be prepared to make people angry, to make people um, push back. You have to be ready to get yelled at. Um, and that has to be okay. You know, you just have to brace yourself for that and just say, this is all, you know, for the greater good. And, um, but beyond that, I think you just have to keep your heart open. I mean, I, I think that's the best way to describe it. Like, you know, think like a reader, think like a person who has a million competing, um, you know, demands on their time, both, uh, you know, in the realm of what there is to read, you know, you literally sit down at your computer every morning and there are, you know, thousands of things you could read at that moment. I mean, it's daunting to imagine. Not to mention, like, you've got your kids yelling at you, you've got homework to do, you know, whatever it is that you have to do, you, your car needs an oil change, whatever. Um, so just remembering like what it's like to be that person and make it really worth their time, you know, make it so that when they choose to click on your story, they're glad they did, you know, they come away knowing something they didn't know before connecting with a human that they never thought they'd connect with. Um, and just keep your heart open to, to finding those stories that, that will achieve that goal. And how about that break-in process, getting that first opportunity? How does that happen for people these days? I wish I could tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> you mean like getting your first clips? Sure, yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's easier than ever, you know? Like, when I was starting out, there was there was print magazines and newspapers, you know? It was like, and, th and there is such limited real estate in print that it was a very high bar to get. I mean, I started out writing these 250-word blurbs in the front of the Providence Phoenix, like, because that was as much real estate as they were willing to risk on somebody with no experience. Right. Now, with the internet, you know, um, <laughs> there's unlimited real estate. In a way, though, of course, that's, um, that's, editors know that too, right? So if you say, um, here's this article I wrote on randomblog.com, you know, there's going to be a fair amount of skepticism, rightly so, you know, what's the editing process, et cetera. But I really think that the quality of your work speaks for yourself. So if you do something brilliant on randomblog.com, that's going to mean a lot more than if you write like, you know, some stupid 250 word thing at the front of the Providence Phoenix right. in print. So I think like, yeah, I, I think that letting your work speak for itself is the most important thing. And I will say, I feel bad for you starting out now, young journalists, because things live forever on the internet and you're not granted the gift of like embarrassing yourself privately in a story that nobody ever has to read again when you're starting out. That is a good thing. I have some newspaper clips going back to the early 90s that I'm really glad I'm the only one who has copied them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, you mentioned the the massive amounts of internet real estate and the thousands of stories that any particular reader might be confronted with. I'm just curious, what's, how do you filter or uh, attack the, the news that you have to read, both the stuff that's important for you and your job and stuff that is important for you as a human being? Um, well, for my job, I have to say I'm extremely lucky that the Marshall Project puts out a brilliant newsletter every morning called Opening Statement. Mm. Um, and Friends of mine that work in the criminal justice world, 
everybody, myself included, we all say to each other, what did I ever do before opening statement? Uh, because uh, we have a brilliant legal analyst, Andrew Cohen, who's literally, it's practically his full-time job to read all there is to read on a given day about criminal justice and curate the best, you know, 25 stories and send them out every morning. Um, and sometimes just reading the email itself is, you feel like edified, even if you don't click on any of the links. Mm -hmm. So I will say I am indebted to opening statement for my criminal justice related news. The other thing I'll say is, um, you know, the, the sort of uh, uh, crowdsourcing type of platforms that we have access to now make it so much easier to um, find great stuff. So Twitter, for instance, like if you have Twitter followers who have great taste, um, you know, you can you can guarantee you'll open up Twitter and you're going to see something interesting that you might have missed otherwise. Um, you know, that's partly about not following 5,000 people, like being somewhat choosy about who you follow um, and, you know, choosing people who, you know, ha have really good um, discerning taste as far as what they read. And the same is true, I think, on... Um, you know, in other in other settings. So, like, if you go to like Pocket, or if you go to one of these other uh, sites where they'll recommend stories to you, like, uh, I find that's really helpful. I mean, there's an echo chamber effect, right? It's like you're gonna get suggestions that are similar to things you've liked in the past, mm -hmm. and there is definitely a downside to that. Um, and I think, in, in in some ways, you can address that downside by just like subscribing to a magazine or a newspaper <laughs> where, you know, nobody's handing you an individual article on a platter. You just open it up and you read what's there. So there's something really nice about that analog kind of practice. Um, but I think, yeah, you just rely on smart people whose opinions you trust. And hopefully that analog practice of subscribing to magazines and newspapers will continue. Please. Yes, please subscribe, everyone. Beth Schwartz-Apfel. Thank you so much for your time today, for the work you do, and uh, it's been great to learn about your work. Thanks for having me. The latest stories from journalist Beth Schwartz-Apfel are all at themarshallproject.org. You'll find show notes and links at themedianarrative.com. This episode was recorded at the Village Works in Brookline, Massachusetts. It was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Media Narrative and write a review at the iTunes Store. I'm Rob Hoschel. Thanks for listening.